Pat, thanks for that warm introduction. And I think I can say that uh, I will see your similarities and raise you one more. Not that I do such things ever. I'm not a gambling man, but um, Matthew said that his dad is Mexican. My mom is Mexican, so I'm Mexican. So that means between the two of us, we make one whole Mexican. <laughs> so that's an important fact. Second, A second observation is uh, God bless you guys for coming out. It's a Friday night. You could have, you know, the three liter of Mountain Dew, a monster bag of Doritos, and be binge-watching Netflix. And instead, you're here listening to the two of us talk about Hopefully what we will aspire to, to give you is edifying and, uh, and, and, and inspiring truth from the scriptures. And so what we want to do this evening and this last lecture for tonight is want to talk about the covenant of uh, redemption. Very briefly, let me quickly define that so that we have a placeholder and we'll get more specific as we get into uh, the rest of the material. But when we're talking about the covenant of redemption, we're talking about the eternal agreement among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, to appoint the Son as mediator and to redeem his bride. So the, the eternal agreement among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to appoint the Son as mediator and to redeem his bride. That's just a placeholder. Now, when I first heard of this doctrine years and years ago when I was reading a book, I, it struck me initially as being a bit speculative because I remember the theologian wrote with a high degree of confidence and said essentially that, you know, the triune God made this agreement in eternity. And I remember thinking, well, how does he know what the Trinity was doing in eternity? Uh, you know, it, it seems a lot like a, a question that was posed to the great theologian Augustine who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries when he was asked, what was God doing before he made the world? And Augustine responded somewhat tongue-in-cheek, he was making hell for people who make and ask questions like that. <laughs> but on the other hand, Augustine followed up his answer with saying, but nevertheless... There is some important truth behind your question. What was God doing before the creation of the world? Well, in this case, we can say at least very broadly that the triune God was planning redemption. He was planning redemption. Now, throughout the years, as people have talked about the covenant of redemption, which was been a historic, I think, doctrine and staple uh, within the teaching of the Protestant Reformation and among its heirs. There have been some that have rejected the doctrine because they've thought it was speculative. They say, I I'm not quite sure that I see this on the pages of the Bible. Uh, others thought that it was simply based upon one single solitary passage of Scripture, from Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, that there was a, an, a, a covenant or an agreement, a council of peace between Yahweh and the branch. Um, others have called it a doctrine of scholastic tinkering, this idea that people are maybe speaking a little bit too confidently about things that they do not really know much about. 
Others have even said that, well, no, this compromises the unity of the Trinity, which is something that Dr. Barrett was just talking about in the last lecture. This compromises the unity of the Trinity because you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit seemingly coming together as if they had different opinions about how to bring about redemption and then coming to an agreement. So they, they, they thought, doesn't this splinter the triune God? Doesn't this splinter the unity of the triune God? Well, if, if these are some of the criticisms that have come against the doctrine over the years, wouldn't this make it, therefore, wise of us to steer clear of this doctrine uh, altogether? On the other hand, I think we can also say that sometimes, sometimes the truth sounds stranger than fiction. And sometimes it's important to get that cognitive dissonance. In other words, that piece of information that doesn't quite fit with the rest of the information that forces us to go back to the scriptures so that we can re-examine them much more closely so that we can hopefully get a clearer line of sight upon the beauty, the glory, and the grace that our triune God has given us in Christ. And so we want to take a closer look at this particular doctrine, the covenant of redemption, because for all of the criticisms, I think that when you actually look and read what theologians have said about this in the past, you're going to find that there's a great trove of riches there. And you're going to see, and we'll see here shortly, that it's based upon a wide range of scripture passages in the Bible. And we're also going to see that contrary to the accusation that they engaged in speculations and in flights of fancy, that they actually were closely reading what the Bible has to say about the triune God that we serve and about our one true God who has planned and executed the redemption of you, the redemption of me. And so what I want to do is, is I want to prove the thesis, the idea that I want to demonstrate that the covenant of redemption is a biblical doctrine and that it is taught in scripture and that it, it serves as a guardian against false teaching. But not only that, but it hopefully instills in us a great sense of assurance and hope, knowing that we have an immovable foundation for our salvation, an immovable foundation for our salvation. So what I want to do in order to pursue this idea is first we're going to look briefly at the historical origins of the doctrine. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Secondly, we want to go at uh, the idea of defining a covenant. If we're going to talk about a covenant, we should define what one is. And then third and finally, we want to look at a number of key passages where we find the covenant of redemption present within the pages of Scripture. So it's historic origins, defining a covenant, and then considering some key passages of Scripture. So let's look first at the historical origins of this. And the reason that I want to start with history first uh, is because it's always important, if we can, as much as possible to get dialed into a conversation. 
So often, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you've uh, come upon two friends having, let's say, uh, a disagreement about something, and you know that they've been sitting there in the coffee shop uh, for several hours, and you hear that they're talking about something that you think is important, and so you want to enter the conversation and you chip in and they tell you, no, 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 we've talked about that one already. That was two hours ago. And so you say, okay, well, how about this? In a thumbnail sketch, catch me up to what you've been talking about so that I can participate in the discussion intelligently. And so they catch you up. So what we want to do is we want to catch up on the conversation here before we go into the Bible and what it has to say. Now, Some have characterized the covenant of redemption as being a new idea. And in theology, new isn't good. You know, you you don't want to come up with something new and fandangled. You want to come up with what the church has historically taught throughout the ages. And then others have said this is speculative because how can we actually know what the triune God is doing before the foundations of the world? Now, they say that it's novel because it originated supposedly in the 17th century, and they think it is speculative because it allegedly tries to peer into the inner workings of the Trinity apart from scriptural warrant. Yet, what we want to note first, at least historically, is that the covenant of redemption is part of a long-standing, ongoing discussion to explain how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate one to another. And Dr. Barrett was talking about some of that just in the previous lecture. But in particular, how can Jesus, how can Jesus say in John 14, 28, given what Dr. Barrett just said in the previous lecture about the Son's complete and full equality with God, how can the Son say that the Father is greater than I? How how do we make sense of that? If they're all equally God, how can the son say, well, the father is greater than I am? And so that's, in a sense, that's a question that has gone back to the very earliest days of the church. And that is a discussion that carries on into the present day. But what has happened is that when the, the 16th century Protestant reformers came to the biblical text... One of the things that they did is, unlike the medieval church, the medieval church largely read the scriptures in Latin translation. And so as the Renaissance developed in in the late 15th century, and, and, you know, you have all sorts of works of art and, and literature, there were people that wanted to get back to the sources, the primary sources. And one of the ways that they went about doing this is they said, you know, as useful as the Latin translation of the scriptures uh, are, we want to read the scriptures in the original languages. We want to read the scriptures in Greek. We want to read the New Testament in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. And so theologians began restudying the scriptures in the original languages. And you had a, a theologian by the name of Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza who was working with the Greek text, and he, in fact, produced a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. And as he was looking at the Latin translation of the scriptures, 
he read a text in Luke twenty two twenty nine, and I'll give it an English translation where he says in Luke twenty two twenty nine, and I, this is Jesus talking to you, he says, I appoint to you as my father appointed to me a kingdom. This is Jesus in the upper room talking to his disciples at the Last Supper when he says, I appoint to you a kingdom as my father appointed to me a kingdom. But then Beza goes and looks at the Greek text and he scratches his head and he says, wait a minute. The Greek here doesn't say appoint. It says covenant. I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. So notice what's happening here is that by studying the scriptures in the original languages, what they could see somewhat clearly came into sharper focus. You know, I don't know, I, 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 um, I feel like I live a good portion of my life in the dark. I get up early in the morning, uh, I, I use my phone as a flashlight because all the lights are out. And I usually do that because, you know, you dads know what I'm talking about. You moms know what I'm talking about. You have to run the household obstacle course, you know, because if you don't, if, if it's dark, you know, somebody left a toy out, somebody left this out. And, you know, so I'm in the dark. When I go for my run, it's usually before the sun comes up. And in fact, I bought this awesome flashlight now and it's got a hand strap so that I can keep my hands free and I think it's like a thousand lumens and so super bright but I would go running sometimes without that flashlight and I remember running one morning and I wasn't where I don't wear I don't like I hate wearing my glasses hate them I mean I need them I'm getting older I'm I'm dying you know so I, I need to I need the glasses you know, all of us are dying, right? So I, I need the glasses, but I hate wearing them. So I'm running and I can't see super clearly at great distances. Okay. Clear enough. Like right now, I just see a lot of fuzzy faces. That's fine. <laughs> but as I was running, the sun was not up yet. It was dark. I thought, what is that that I see that? I, I can't quite make that out. And I saw a white dot and another white dot. And another white dot, and I, and I literally started rubbing my eyes because I thought maybe I'm just, I'm just too tired. And, and the closer I got, I was like, there's another dot, and there's another dot, and what in the world? And I finally realized it was six doe. Okay, I was, they were just kind of out. In Mississippi, there's, there's a lot of animals. I don't know about here, uh, in, in Omaha, but we got a lot of animals in Mississippi, so six deer. So at a distance, I couldn't quite make out what it was. I could tell you I see something there. I see six white dots. It was six deer tail is what it was. And then as I got close enough, I finally realized, oh, it's six doe. And I was close enough to find out that they weren't bucks. They were female deer. The, you know, what, 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 what changed wasn't the, the objects that I was looking at, but the clarity with which I could see it. And this is the way these, these, these scholars in the 16th century Reformation came to the biblical text. It's not that they were adding anything to the scriptures, but rather they could now see with greater clarity what was there all along because they were reading the Bible in the original languages. And so there's a sense in which Beza drops this observation that Christ uh, receives 
a, a covenanted kingdom to him from his father. And he drops that observation into the theological pond and it ripples. And all of a sudden, ideas like, how can the son say that the father is greater than I am? How can he say that? Well, it's got a context and it's the context of the father giving to the son a covenant. All of these things are a part of working out the plan of redemption that the triune God has put together. Okay, and so, uh, and so enter in the covenant of redemption in the late 16th century. It's not that it has been added to the scriptures, but rather it's that now they're able to see the scriptures more clearly and they can add greater focus to what is there in the scriptures. Now they have, if you will, a frame of reference in which to understand how the triune God is bringing about our redemption. We can put it in the framework of a covenant. Okay. All right, so that's just the briefest of historical observations about the nature of the history of the covenant and its origins. So let's now transition to our second point here, which is defining a covenant so that we can have a better understanding of what a covenant is. We, we gave our basic understanding and the definition at the front end. Well, let's get a little bit more specific. Now, to say the least, defining a covenant has been, at least in the last hundred years, one of the more hotly debated discussions in theology. Um, but what we can say is that up until the 19th century, large in part from the first century up until the 19th century, within the church, theologians were more or less agreed on the idea that a covenant is an agreement in its most fundamental level. And uh, in the children's catechism, which is a simplified version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a catechism written for children in the 17th century, is they define a covenant as an agreement between two or more people. An agreement between two or more people. Now, depending upon the uh, type of covenant, or I should say the parties involved in the covenant, that agreement can take on different characteristics. You know, let me illustrate this, is that if I make an agreement with one of my sons that if you clean up your room uh, for every day for a week, then I'll pay you $10. I wouldn't want to pay more than that because it's, it's not worth it. <laughs> a clean room has limited value to me. But anyway, okay, I'll give you $10. Now notice, in this, in this agreement... I'm willing to give my son $10 if he's willing to give me, um, if he's willing to give me a clean room. I'm the superior in the arrangement because not only do I have money that I can give to him, something that he doesn't have, but as I have told him on a regular basis, I'm your daddy. I'm your old man. I'm in charge. You know, I'm the chief. You're the Indian. Okay, so understand the nature. So he's the inferior on the superior. Now, that there's a give and take in that relationship and in that covenantal agreement. There's a give and take there. But 
just a couple of weeks ago, my, my, my wife had the opportunity to take my two boys to a college football game because they got invited by some friends of the family, said, come up, we'll take, you know, you and the boys to the game. And I was like, that's fine. I'll stay home. I got to stay home with my daughter and, and we played dolls. Big time. It was good. Okay. Anyway, so I, I said to my wife, I said, we were there in the grocery store. They were getting some stuff for the trip. And I said, hey, you know what? I want the kids, I want the boys especially. They've, they've been having a few issues. We'll just put it like that. They've had a few issues that has required some, we'll say correction. Okay. We'll say correction. I said, but I, I want us to really show them the meaning of grace. They don't deserve it, but treat them like royalty. If they want to go out to eat, take them out to eat. If they're at the game and they want a T-shirt, get them a T-shirt. Uh, you know, if if there's, uh, I don't know, foam finger, whatever it is, you know, get them the foam finger. I want them to know that we love them and that this is undeserved. In spite of some of the issues that we've had, we love them. Now, that's an agreement that we have and we give to these these boys of ours but it's undeserved and in that in that context they're not doing anything and in fact sometimes they're working against the agreement and yet in our in grace we give something to them very freely that's a different type of agreement okay that's the way that we want to approach these things in scripture because in the scriptures you find this same type of thing in the garden of eden god makes a covenant with adam and he says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill all the earth and subdue it and don't eat from the tree. So in order for you to receive blessing, you've got to obey. In the Noahic covenant, God doesn't tell Noah that he has to do much of anything. He just says, I make this promise. I will never destroy the earth by water again. And I make this promise to you and to every creature in the whole creation. So you have to pay attention to the particulars in each different covenant in order to understand what type of agreement it is. You know, some people have defined a covenant as a bond in blood. And I want to say, well, that's not true of every covenant. For example, in the marriage relationship, the marriage relationship is a covenant, but it's not a bond in blood. It, I may risk being having my blood shed, you know, if, if I make bad decisions. <laughs> You know, it's like I, I was looking online and I saw Joe Montana, rookie, rookie card for, you know, the 49ers, uh, only $1,100. What a bargain. And I told my brother, I said, boy, I'm so tempted, but I, I fear for my, my, my physical safety if I were to, if I were to make that purchase. As much as I would tell my wife, it's an investment, I don't think that she would be convinced. There that might be, it, the bond might result in blood. Okay. But not every covenant involves blood. And so that's why we say at its most fundamental level, a covenant is an agreement. It's an agreement. But here's what I want us to do is look at some other biblical data to see what other types of activities mark making a covenant. So, for example, in Psalm 105, Psalm 105 Verses 8 and following, I want you to listen to how the psalmist uses different ideas interchangeably with covenant. He says in 105 verse 8, 
He remembers, that is, God remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. So notice the word that he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Notice the different ideas that are used interchangeably here. And that a covenant can be administered when God says, I command you to do something. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded. Because guess what? When God commands you to do something, you're now in an agreement. By virtue of your status as a a creature and an image bearer, you have a moral obligation to obey the command of God. You are in covenant with him. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. So notice here that covenant is interchangeable with a promise. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. That too is a covenant because God puts his word and promise around Abraham and it it brings Abraham in into this relationship with God. But also it says there in verse 10, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, so that you could say that even God's statutes, or another way that this is translated is his decrees, are tantamount to a covenant. So it's interchangeable with a command, a sworn promise, or a statute, or decree. Okay, so this, this, this lays the groundwork then, and helps us to understand That God's commands, his oaths or promises, and his statutes, these things are his covenants. When God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of knowledge, this is a covenant. He issued a command. When God made his promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, he made a covenant with Abraham. When he swore an oath to Isaac, this was a covenant. When he gave his statutes and his decrees to Jacob or to Israel, this is his covenant. Okay, so historical origins, defining and describing a covenant. And now thirdly, with the time that remains, we want to consider some key texts so that we can begin to fill in the picture here as to seeing the triune God making a covenant among themselves. And the first text that I want us to look at, and it's Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2-7, where the psalmist famously says in this second psalm, and he says it ultimately of the Messiah, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, remember what I just said about Psalm 105, verse 10, that he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. It's the same term in the Hebrew, decree or statute, so that commentators as diverse as 
German liberal Old Testament scholar and a 17th century Scottish covenanter theologian say the same thing when they say uh, that you could translate Psalm 2-7 as, I will tell of the covenant. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will tell of the covenant. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now within the immediate historical context here in Psalm 2-7, what David has in view is the covenant that God made with him to sit one of his descendants upon Israel's throne. Second Samuel chapter 7 verses 13 and following. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I put away from uh, whom I put away from before you. And so he says in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God covenanted to David to give the Messiah a kingdom. And in fact, you might say, well, wait a minute. In Second Samuel 7, I don't hear the word covenant. And I say, yeah, that's right. You didn't hear the word covenant, but you do see God making a promise. How does the psalmist later characterize this promise? Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. Remember the sworn oath to Isaac? I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now notice what's going on here. And this is why... There's a sense in which we have to not only go and look at the scope of everything that we see in the scriptures, but we have to go behind it into eternity prior to the creation of the world to see where it all comes from. Because as David says here, and let's pretend that right here at the podium is Psalm 2. And David says, I tell you of the covenant. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. I will tell you of the covenantal promise that God has made to me and ultimately to the Messiah. But the question is, is where does this promise originate? We know where it's going. If this here is Psalm 2, then we can say over here is the New Testament fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 2 with the advent of Jesus, the son of David, who is descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection uh, by the Holy Spirit, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 echoing this very text from Psalm 2-7. We can also say that at the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus echoes this same Psalm 2-7 text. When the Father bellows out of the heavens as Jesus is baptized, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He's the Davidic heir. He's the Son of David. But that nagging question still comes to mind. 
the nagging question still comes to mind from Luke twenty two twenty nine. I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. When did that happen? There's no recorded event in the Gospels of the Father saying, I covenant to you a kingdom. When did it occur? We can't say that it happens here in Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, this is David speaking of the covenant that God had made with him, with King David, about the future Davidic heir. And so what this does is this leaves us with going back before the creation even existed. And we see this, for example, in other places in the scriptures. And we're going to be looking at this in greater detail tomorrow as well as on Sunday morning. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 and following, you find the author of Hebrews quoting uh, Psalm 110, verse 4. Okay, but listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 and following. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, speaking of the Levites. But this one, that is Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's a sworn oath. Remember what we said going back to Psalm 105? That a sworn oath is a promise. It's a covenant. And it's by the Father's sworn oath that he appointed Jesus the guarantor of the better covenant. Now, there's, there's some stuff to unpack here, but think about this for a moment. First of all, what's a guarantor? Uh, it's not a cosigner. When I was, uh, when I, when I turned, uh, uh, I think it was 18 years old, I wanted to buy a car. My parents had given me a car and, and it kind of got old and, and, and so it was time to replace it. And so, uh, you know, I went and I, I signed the papers for a loan, but because I was 18, basically had zero credit history, so my dad stepped up to the plate and he co-signed. That's not a guarantor, because I still had to make the payments. The only reason he would step in is if I failed to make the payments. A guarantor, on the other hand, says... I assume all legal responsibilities for this agreement, completely and totally. I wish my dad had been the guarantor, because then that would have meant free car. Okay, no, no free car. I had to pay for that car. But what the author of Hebrews says is that the father appointed Jesus as the guarantor of the better covenant, of the new covenant, that he assumes all of the legal responsibilities for it. So that's what he's saying. And so we say, praise God for that blessing. But once again, we have that persistent question. When did the father swear an oath to the son and appoint him heir? And not only heir, but the guarantor of the covenant. When did this all transpire? Because again, there is no recorded incident 
of this occurring in the New Testament. We have no recorded conversation between them. But what we do have is we have Old Testament passages like Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 110, or as we'll look at tomorrow, Isaiah chapter 53, where the authors of the Old Testament had the privilege of eavesdropping, if you will, on a conversation that took place prior to the creation of the world, where the Father in eternity appoints the Son as the guarantor, and he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are the guarantor of the better covenant. And these Old Testament authors, in a sense, heard this conversation. And so now we can say that it's over here where this conversation takes place in eternity among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to appoint the Son by a sworn oath, by a promise, where the Father says, if you go and if you submit to the law, if you pay the penalty for your bride, I will give unto you a people. I will give unto you a bride. Think in terms of Ephesians chapter 1, that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ. The fact that Paul says we are chosen in Christ, in Messiah, shows us that prior to the foundation of the world, the triune God is appointing the Son as the Messiah, Because we're chosen in Christ. So many of us use that name so regularly, we think of Christ as his last name. It's not his last name. It's his office. It's his title. It's Jesus, the anointed one. And Paul says that we were chosen in Jesus, the anointed one. Well, now it gets revealed slowly and progressively in various parts. Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Psalm 2, I will tell of the covenant. Uh, The Lord said to me, you are my son. Psalm 110, you know, you are a priest appointed according to the order of Melchizedek. So when we get over here to the fulfillment in Christ, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is the... The, the, the covenant guarantor who it was said by God's sworn oath, his covenant promise, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so you see how all of this, it begins in eternity and there's a sense in which what God does is he projects it into the creation. And it, it slowly, it slowly unfolds so that when you get passages in Philippians chapter 2, what you can see and what you can hear in Paul's uh, rhapsodic and beautiful hymn to the Messiah is he's wrapped all of this up when he says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, though he's equal with God, think about what Dr. Barrett was talking about, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who tried to grasp equality with God? Adam. 
He took from the tree. He tried to grasp equality with God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And so then what does Paul say? Therefore, anytime you see the therefore, ask what's the therefore, therefore. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice, that's the unfolding of the plan. The Father, because, therefore, because he humbled himself, therefore, God the Father exalts him. Where does this come from? It comes all the way back here from the covenant that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come come together, if you will, to plan what comes to fruition in, in, in history. It's within this framework, it's understanding the eternal covenant of redemption, the agreement among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that then helps us to understand so many of the other statements that we find in the New Testament that Jesus says. Think, for example, in John chapter 5, verses 36 and 37, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Did you hear that? That Jesus says the works that the father gave to me. I want to ask you once again, when did the father give works for the son to do? Moreover, he says the works that I am doing, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the father has sent me. You can't send yourself. The father sent the son. And in fact, in the gospel of John Jesus says more than 30 times, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me. Just like Luke twenty two twenty nine, I covenant to you a kingdom, like as my Father has covenanted to me a kingdom, when did the Father send the Son? John seventeen four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Well, when did the Father give to the Son a work to do? John fourteen twenty eight. You have heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Why? Okay, now this begins to help us to understand. It's not that the Son somehow says, well... I've got to divest myself of my equality with the Father. I've got to somehow empty out some of my divinity so that I'm less, so that I can say he's greater than I. No, it's that the Son who is fully equal with the Father says within the covenant of redemption, who will go? And he says, I will go. And the Father says, I'm going to send you. So within the framework of this covenant, that is how the Son can say the Father is greater than I. Not that he is somehow less than the Father, but because he willingly goes when the Father sends. But it's within this covenantal framework 
that the father not only appoints the son as covenant guarantor and sends him, and then the son willingly submits to the father and goes, that the father and the son both send the spirit, John fourteen twenty six. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, you, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John fifteen twenty six. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. Father and son sending the spirit. Where does this originate? In the covenant of redemption prior to the creation. So when Jesus in Luke twenty two twenty nine says, I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. We can just say that that is simply the tip of a massive exegetical and theological iceberg that stretches throughout the whole canon of the scriptures, the whole canon of the scriptures. And it reveals the covenantal nature of this eternal Trinitarian work that what God was doing before he created the world, what was he doing? He was planning redemption. He was setting his love upon you. But if we're listening carefully to the text of Scripture and paying close attention to what the biblical authors had the privilege of listening in on these conversations in in, in eternity among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have an ethical and moral obligation to report what they have said. So the doctrine of the covenant of redemption isn't about trying to be creative. It's not about adding unnecessary layers to the Scriptures. Rather, it's about listening carefully to what the scriptures say so that when the author of Hebrews says that the father swore an oath to appoint the son to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, that that's covenantal activity. That's covenantal activity. Now, we might say, okay, that's great. That's covenantal activity. That's interesting. But what difference does it make? Now, I don't want us to think that we always have to say, what difference does it make? And and that's the, the, the sole bar of measuring whether or not a doctrine is good or not, because it's not. But we do want to ask that question, because one of the things I said at the outset was that this is a doctrine that should hopefully give us great assurance. Why? Because one of the things that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7, which we'll look at tomorrow, is that if there's one thing that is absolutely certain and sure and immovable, it's the sworn oath of God. You know, these days, as highly litigious as our society is, where in order to secure a business agreement, a covenant, you have to produce massive, thick documents and contracts. It's like, have you ever done this when you go to buy a house? There's first two or three documents that you have to sign that say, yes, I am who I say I am. It's really me. (laughs) I promise. (laughs) You know, and then, yes, here's my... You got to sign your name. I forget how many times we signed our name, 40 or 50 times, just to secure an agreement. It's long gone since the days when you could say, my word is my bond. And you can take me at my word. Well, God need not sign 
his name 40 and 50 times, he only has to say, I promise. And I swear to you by covenant that I give unto you my son whom I have appointed as the covenanter or the, as the covenantal guarantor that he will take upon himself all of the legal responsibilities. Your salvation rests therefore upon the immovable, immutable, irreversible, indefectible covenantal promise of God that was made among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The covenant of redemption is that immovable, solid foundation for our salvation in Christ. You can bank on it because you can trust in our faithful triune God. That's a tremendous source of hope for us and hopefully a great source of assurance. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your covenantal promises that you have given us in Christ. And we can know that the covenant that we have in Christ is sure because of the covenant that you have made with him. The covenant where you have appointed him as our guarantor, as our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The covenant where you and the Son have agreed with the Holy Spirit to send the Spirit to bring to remembrance all that Christ has revealed, all that he has taught. Oh, Father, what a tremendous blessing it is to know that we are the recipients of such covenantal riches and that your word is certain, unfailing, and true. We pray, O Lord, that in times of doubt, we would anchor our hope upon this certain covenantal promise and this hope that we have in you. We may fail at our word, but you never do. And for this, we give thanks and praise you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.